And now a performance of John Cage's 433. Please welcome our soloist, William Marks. It was in 1952 that American composer John Cage decided to write an experimental piece of music in a way that had never been done before. Because see, for this entire composition, the musician never plays any music. Never once. Instead, they simply perform silence. As you might expect, it was not terribly well received by concert goers who bought tickets. It was not well received by music critics who came to review both the composition by Mr. Cage and the performance of the man who premiered it, nor was it well received by all of his fellow composers, all of the intellectual elite of his day. John Cage wasn't terribly concerned about their lack of approval because, of course, as you might expect, he felt strongly that the reason they could not understand his piece of music was because they didn't understand it. Cage said this, he said, they missed the point. There's no such thing as silence. What they thought was silence was because they didn't know how to listen. And he talked about this a number of times in different interviews and different opportunities. And, and he basically came to say, you know, silence doesn't exist because there is always sound. There is always something that is happening. In different performances, there were reports of riots at some of his performances back in the 50s and 60s. By the way, how tight were those people wound if they would riot at a classical music concert, right? Let's be honest. But he talked about, you know, that silence is a sound. And the existence and the projection of silence is incredibly important, and it's meaningful, and it means something. And we're going to see that today when we study Revelation 6, 7, and 8. We're going to see and experience a lot of silence. 
And in fact, we're going to experience that silence in a way that makes us uncomfortable, that leaves us wanting more, that leaves us a little bit confused at times, trying to figure out what God is truly doing. And so we resume today in Revelation 6. We're talking about the seven seals. And you probably remember that the vision that's happening is Jesus is unrolling the scroll that has God's perfect plan for the world. And every time he opens it a little bit more, one of the seals breaks and something happens. And the first four seals were awful. They were the four horsemen of the apocalypse that went out and wreaked judgment upon the earth through conquest, murder, famine through injustice, plague, and death. And those four horsemen were bringing judgment upon the earth. And it, it really seemed counter to what we would expect because we expected that when God's plan was unveiled that wonderful and amazing things would happen. And instead, it was terrible. It was judgment. It was death. It was pain. And remember, there are three sets of these large sevens in, in Revelation. You have the seven seals that we're going to finish today. Then there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls. And they're all kind of parallel visions because they all use different imagery, but they all kind of arrive in the same place. And so today we're going to finish one of those sevens, and we're going to arrive in that place. So picking it up, seal number five. When he, this is Jesus, when he opened the fifth seal. I, that's John, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. John saw Christian martyrs who died for their faith. And this imagery here of being under the altar is a very graphic one. It means that they were killed and their blood had collected under the altar and there they remained to this day. And John saw those people and they cried out, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Seal 5 is the response of the martyrs who say, this world isn't right. When are you going to fix it? And these words that they pray, they hang heavy in the air. How long until you make this right? But they're told to wait. They're told that more like them are going to die. They're told that now is not that time. They are greeted with silence. This is the same prayer that we so often pray today. We're in this world that's obviously broken, that's obviously messed up, that's obviously hurting, and we cry, how long? And we feel like we're hearing silence. In the same way that the Christian martyrs cried out with the fifth seal. Now the sixth seal, this is a really bad one. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. As figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, the heavens receded like a scroll this is a different scroll, scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Don't gloss over these words here. This is, quite simply, the end of the world. The answer to how long until you will make it right, God, was not met with grace or beauty or love. It was met with the destruction of the known world. Why? What is going on here? See, 
the way that God interacts with this creation, it's important to understand the theology behind it. There are some who will, and this was especially common about 250 years ago, which coincidentally is exactly how old our country is. They viewed God as a cosmic watchmaker. They believed that God created the heavens, the earth, that he was intricately involved in making it and designing it and laying it out, that the complexity of the world makes it obvious that someone made it. But the cosmic watchmaker argument, which is put forward by William Paley and others, says that God started the earth in motion in an incredible, complicated, intricate way, but then lets it run. And that the world is kind of on autopilot. And this argument would say that, you know, God can sort of check in on the world from time to time and see how things are going. And maybe he will occasionally intervene, but ultimately he's not involved in the daily lives of the people who are on this world. Now, theologically, you should disagree with that. But how often do we actually live that way? We say, yeah, we, I, we know there's a God, but he seems distant, maybe a little bit busy. And what's going on now doesn't seem to have his attention. And so the problem with that is that is not what the scripture teaches. The scripture talks about that God sustains his creation every day as part of the character of who he is. Colossians 1 is talking about the beauty of Jesus. It says in verse 15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things have been created, things of seen and unseen, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And then verse 17 says, And in him all things hold together. And that's important. Because the creation is held in God's hands. He perpetuates it by his existence and he continues it in motion through his sovereign will. Without God, all things fall apart. We talked last week how the realization of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, murder, injustice, famine, death, that these are really so often the result of when man rules the world ourselves. When mankind decides, I'm going to run the world my way. And so when we see this picture of complete cosmic implosion and disaster, it's God saying, you wanted to run the world. You got it. Let's see how you do sustaining the world since you're so mighty and powerful. To that, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. You see the juxtaposition here. Those who lived in palaces now live in caves. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And those people who are now, who once lived in a palace but now live in a cave, they say, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This question hangs in the air. Who can withstand this wrath? And they listen. They hear silence. Because without God sustaining his world, it no longer exists. Romans 8 talks about that the whole world has been groaning. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, right? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. 
in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You know, we ourselves who have the, the spirit within us, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. When God comes into our life and makes everything right. And so this question hangs in the air from the kings who now live in the caves. Who can withstand all of this? It's too much. It's too hard. Now an incredible thing happens in the book of Revelation. God takes a break from this vision. He interrupts the vision with another vision. It's like a picture-in-picture -picture event or a commercial or something. I don't know. But it was very clear there are going to be seven seals. And after six seals, the vision stops. And instead, we hear chapter 7, which Conrad just read. And chapter 7 is totally different. All of the horror and terror of Revelation 6 is perfectly matched by hope and grace and beauty and optimism and love in Revelation 7. It's as different as can be. In fact, it's even more confusing than that. Because not only does it interrupt the vision of the seals, but it happens before it. Okay? John is very clear as he writes Revelation. He says over and over, after this, I heard. After this, I saw. He walks us through the way God revealed it to him. But the way God revealed it is not in the order that it happens. Look, Conrad read this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Who are the four winds of the earth? Remember from last week? They are the four horsemen. The four horsemen image is borrowed from an Old Testament prophet named Zechariah. And he was the one who explained that the horses and the winds are the same. Why are the horses and the winds the same? I don't know. That's Zechariah's call. He says they're the same. I'm going with him. So, these are the four horsemen being held back. That before that outpouring of judgment ever started upon the world, something else had to happen. He said, you're not going to have any wind blow on the land. Remember, wind is, is evil in judgment. Or on the sea or on any tree. Then another angel came and he said... He called to these four angels who had been given power over the world to judge it. He said, do not harm the land or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. An incredibly important thing happened before the seven seals ever started to be opened. God sealed his People, who can withstand? The question still hangs in the air. And it's answered by the preamble to chapter 7. Who can withstand? Those who have been sealed by God. Those who have been set apart. Those who have been protected and kept safe. And then Revelation 7, of course, because it's Revelation 7, goes through numbers and pictures and images. And you hear it being read and it's like, is he speaking English? Like, am I supposed to be able to follow this as he's reading it? He did a great job reading it, but you're just thinking, like, I can't follow what's happening. And so there's a few things here, and I don't think we have to overcomplicate it. First, it says in Revelation 7, there are 144,000 people who've been sealed. That seems like an incredibly precise number, doesn't it? 144,000. But as we've been journeying through Revelations for six weeks, have we ever truly taken a number literally? Not really. They're all symbols. These are visions. Okay? 144,000. Where does this number come from? 
Clearly there's 12s involved, right? Everyone who did their fourth grade times tables know we've got 12 times 12 equals 144 kind of lingering out there. 12 is a huge number in the Bible, right? You got your 12 tribes, you got your 12 apostles. 12 tribes are God's chosen people, Israel from the Old Testament. The apostles are God's chosen representatives who bring in the new covenant sent out by him in the New Testament. Don't forget, try not to move too fast, but it all matters. Don't forget, we have 24 elders right now sitting in the throne room since Revelation 4, 12 and 12, right? Okay, so 12 times 12 are 144. What about the 100,000 part? This is where just imagery and vision comes in, because if you take a number... And you times it by 10, it's a big deal. You take a number and times it by 10 times 10, well, now you're saying it's very important. If you take a number 10 times 10 times 10, you're saying this is a number really that is beyond can be counted. And hear me out, because later in the book, a new Jerusalem is created, and that city is 12,000 stadia on each side. It's a cube. 12, and a stadia, by the way, I know your car doesn't have stadias on the odometers. A stadia is about an eighth of a mile. So this is a city that wouldn't fit on the earth. So we have this 12,000, this 12 thing happening. The number is, to make a point, to say there are a huge contingent of people who have been set aside, who have been sealed. And they're listed out similar to, but not the same, as the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. Now, in first glance, it sounds like just a regular old tribal listing, like we used to get back in Numbers and Deuteronomy, especially Numbers, no pun intended, that's where it comes from. But it's not, first of all, Judah is listed first. He's not the firstborn son, so for Judah to be listed first, something else is going on. Judah is the tribe that who comes from? Jesus. This is the tribe of Jesus. In fact, why do you call God's chosen people the Jews? Judah. It's not that complicated, okay? There's other problems, too. One of the tribes is omitted, a tribe named Dan. Uh, no offense to any Dans in the room, but they're not on the list. Um, in fact, Dan seems to be a tribe that kind of goes askew. Again, sorry, Dan, if you're here. Um, there's other issues with it, too, that aren't the same. Uh, Joseph is listed. He's not usually listed as one of the 12 tribes because his two sons get listed instead which are named Manasseh and Ephraim. One of them is actually on this list, so we've got Joseph and one of his sons, but not the other son. And Levi is on this list. Levi is usually not on the list because they didn't have an inheritance. What does that mean? It's similar to a listing of the tribes of Israel, but it's not. There's five reasons that it's not. So out of 12 tribes, you know, five of them are quote-unquote wrong. So it's not a traditional classic listing of the tribes of Israel. Instead... Scholars feel very passionately that the reason that these differences exist is to, to be called part of Israel, especially in John's day, was an incredible compliment to believers in Jesus. Because the Jews are God's chosen people. And then if you read the New Testament, it says, great news. Anyone who believes in Jesus is added to that number, is part of the new Israel. And so now we have this listing, and there's 12,000 from each and every bullet point. He's just over and over saying there are so many who will be sealed. So many, in fact, that when, if you read chapter 7, John first said, I heard, and then I saw. And this is a pattern that he sees. So what he heard was this census, and then what he saw was a great multitude. Which is the point. There is a huge 
crowd of people who will be sealed. And by the way, what does that crowd look like? Um, they are from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Does this factor into 2020 at all? I think it might. The realization that every single ethnicity, every single culture, every single race is all part of this multitude that was such a great multitude that it can never be counted. So who can withstand the awful judgments of the seals? A great multitude of God's people who've been sealed and set aside by him. And the, all of chapter 7 is just this wonderful reminder that those who've been, or who are under God's care, who are under his authority, who are under his love, they, you, are protected, are sealed. And it's so nice because we get to be distracted just for a minute from the seals. I know it's seals and sealed. It's confusing, but it's God's vision, so we're going to go with it, right? We get to be distracted because we've had six seals out of the seven. Because honestly, we have no interest in number seven. If you think about what we've gone through for these first six, they're horrible. You know, death, famine, persecution, martyrdom, and then the end of the physical world. The beginning of chapter eight, it's like, I don't even want to turn this page. I don't even want to know what number seven is. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. For about half an hour. We usually preach for about a half an hour. So I thought, you know what? I'll have a shorter week if that's my sermon. If I just stand there and I have 30 minutes of silence. But this silence that comes over heaven right at the moment when we need God most. At the end of the seven seals. Why silence? Why is nothing happening? I'm just getting frustrated by this at this point. Something was supposed to happen and nothing has happened. What's with all the silence? And honestly, it gets a little more frustrating because the next verse says, And I saw the seven angels stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. The next seven is starting up. Like, wait, come on now. The first seven just end in silence? That's it? This is not what I had in mind. And the... the Angels are queuing up with the seven trumpets who are going to do the, the seven trumpet judgments, which, like I said, end in the same place as seal six, by the way. They end with this great cataclysmic end of the world. And so the next vision is queuing up, and we're frustrated by that. It shouldn't be over. But something happens. Another angel, not one of those seven, who had a golden censer. Do you know what a censer is? Some churches are into incense. I think it's great. We've never really done it here. And it's usually like a beautiful pot. Some sort of, you know, almost looks like a lantern. There'll be a little flame in the bottom. And you put incense in it, and you can walk around with it. If you go to a Catholic uh, funeral, they will take and they will cover the casket in incense with a censer. You've probably all seen that image. Okay? The angel has one of those censers. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. All right, so the prayers of God's people are going into the censer, and that is now filling heaven with its aroma, with its smell. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. 
So the prayers of God's people, both those who are going through terrible judgment, both the martyrs under the altar, these prayers are reaching Jesus. And what happens there? The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it upon the earth. So the prayers of God's people that have made it all the way in his throne room, he then takes them, he receives them, and that is the judgment that he throws down onto the earth. You see what's happening here? Remember, we're going in circles and patterns and backwards and forwards, and I get that. But what sends off the big seven judgments is the prayers of God's people. We were heard before any of it ever began. So all these questions that hang in the air, all the moments of silence that hang in the air, we've already been heard by God. And those prayers are the fire that God sends down onto the earth. And so the church and the martyrs, their prayers have never been lost. In fact, they are the fuel, the fire behind the justice that God brings into this world today, here, and now. And so as we just try to think about all this, we figure out, okay, we've, we've got silence, but there was not silence because God was speaking and God had already kind of pre-spoken and when we didn't hear him, it's perhaps because we weren't listening and there's so much that's going on. But I think we can boil it down to two things that are very important and they're not at all complicated. I think Revelation 6, 7 and the beginning of 8 are teaching us two very important principles as God's people. The first one, we need to be people that are praying for this world that we're in. We've seen here that the prayers of the church go all the way into the throne room of God. They are incense, which means they smell beautiful, and they hang in the air of all that has been going on. Those prayers are our prayers. Have you been sending up your prayers into the throne room? Do you have a daily habit and appetite for prayer? Are you crying out to spend time with your Savior, empowered by the Holy Spirit? Are you praying for this world? Because praying for the world is the most effective thing we can do as the church to make all things right. I will say it again. Prayer is the most effective thing we can do in this world to make everything right. Kind of an end-time scholar named Jacques Ilel, I like that name, Jacques, he says, the Christian who prays acts more effectively and more decisively on society than the person who is politically involved. Can we read that out loud? Is that possible? Would you be willing to read that with me out loud? From the beginning, read with me. The Christian who prays acts more effectively and more decisively on society than the person who is politically involved. Wow. That's crazy. I could like, I can shut off my Facebook now. Like, this is beautiful. Because, yes, are you supposed to bring justice into the world? Absolutely. I literally preached that last week. I'm not saying you're not supposed to make the world right. But the most effective thing we can do is not even political involvement, but it's to be earnestly praying on our knees, seeking God's face. Why? It's, it's not a matter of them being in opposition to one another but of inverting our instinctive cultural hierarchy of values. 
there's something wrong with us. And I'm, believe me, with us, I'm including myself. This is a selfie. There's something wrong with us. We have this tendency to say, I'm going to go, do, act, be. And then at the end, we're like, oh, I should probably pray as well. Or, if you're like super holy, you'll have all these plans, all these ideas, and then right before it's time to go, you just sprinkle a quick little prayer on at the beginning. Like, oh yeah, by the way, God, I hope you like this plan because it's kind of like already done. So just bless it if you could because we're doing it. How often do we pray that prayer? But instead, to be earnestly people who are praying first, that we are on our knees crying out for this world that surrounds us. Because as we lift up our world in prayer, we bring effectual change from God upon this world. One more encouragement I want to leave you with. The world right now is rough. The images of Revelation are rough. We ourselves can be asking these questions. Who can withstand this? It's too much. I can't take this anymore. But know that you are sealed. This image has come up many times in the Bible. Uh, one that you're very familiar with is, you know, during the Passover, there was a, a mark that was put on the houses of God's people that sealed them and protected them from judgment. The prophet Ezekiel has a similar account where God was going to judge the city and instead the people were sealed with God. And if you read Revelation, when we cycle through the trumpet judgments and we talk about this same idea, he talks about how the, the, the 144,000 have the name of the Lamb written on their forehead. And if you've ever talked about Revelation or read about it, you know there's a really famous part we haven't gotten to yet, the mark of the beast. What is that? I'm not going to tell you. But this is the opposite. This is the mark of the Lord. These are the people who have been marked and set aside for God. So later in the book, when we get to the mark of the enemy, those who, the, who claim and pledge allegiance to the enemy, that is the opposite. It's the dark kind of shadow and the imitation of the true and good seal that comes from God. And so this seal protects you from the judgment that is coming upon the earth. It doesn't protect you physically. You'll still get sick. You'll still die. People you know and love will die. But your faith, your salvation can never be taken from you by our enemy. You have been sealed. This is the confidence that we need in our hearts and our souls to serve God in difficult times because we know we are confident beyond the shadow of a doubt. We have the assurance of our salvation. We have been sealed. We are his people forever. And that is what enables our faith. Because to be sealed with the seal of the living God is to have the character of the living God written on our minds and our hearts. To be sealed with the Lamb is to have him written into the fabric of our being. And then once sealed, the enemies of our God cannot take us. That's the strength and the power and the comfort that we need in order to withstand the difficult days that will come our way. And so I'm going to invite Robert to come up. He's going to lead us through communion, and the band's going to come and support that, and we're going to sing together in a minute. Because as we talk about being sealed, I think for some people that think, how do I really know that I'm sealed? That sounds awesome, but what if I'm insecure about being sealed? Well, there's a couple different ways you can break it down. 
I mean, let's go back to Romans 8, uh, Exodus in 10. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. Well, I'm not sure, Romans 10, 13. Well, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And so then when we truly believe that the Lamb has purchased us with the price of his blood, then we desire to keep his commandments. We feel the conviction of sin that we want to learn to do things God's way. And we are willing to bear witness to the Lamb in this world. Know that you are sealed. You know, for many of us, when we are kind of having this insecurity about how do we know, we'll often pray a prayer and we'll, we'll just simply want to pray as a moment. Now, there's nothing, you know, kind of magic about praying what, what most people call the sinner's prayer. But the beauty of saying, taking a moment and saying, I am giving my life to Christ today, is the confidence that you have that you can look back. And, you know, maybe for you, you want to be able to say, you know, October 18, 2020, is when I embraced and understood that I am sealed. And maybe for you, before you come and receive these elements of communion today, you want to pause there at your seat, and you want to pray, and you want to ask and say, God, you know, this body isn't broken just for all of us. It's broken for me. And this blood wasn't spilled just for everyone, but it was spilled for me. And for today, for many of you, maybe this is the day when you want to declare with your mouth and believe in your heart. Jesus rose from the dead and that he was given for you. So I'd invite you, why don't you pray with me right now? God, as, as we just work our way through these visions and this prophecy, uh, a lot of it is, is very thick. A lot of it can seem opaque and hard to understand. But Father, it's not. You've made it clear to us that you've set aside your people. You've, you've showed us incredible grace and love and compassion. You've protected us from the evil that's coming in this world. God, I pray for all of my friends who are here today that they would sense your love, they would sense your presence, they would sense your protection. And that God, for anyone who's thinking, I just don't know if I'm one of the sealed or not. God, I pray that now would be the day of God's favor and now would be the day of salvation in their life. Teach us, God, to pray. Teach us to turn from our wicked ways and instead to live the life that you've called us to. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.